been as high as Catman do Tilted to the side like that fat man's shoe Look, not to give a mixed signal The rap game got more toys than Chris Kringle He's This is hell. Live from the American Republic, which is not a democracy, because democracies are bad for minorities. I don't make the rules. I'm not Chuck, after all, nor do I wish I was. I'm just producer Seb, abusing my producer privileges again to use this here show as my personal soapbox once more. Welcome to a week in limbo with your favorite nonchucks. No, not nonchucks, nonchucks. We are not kung fu fighting here. What we are doing, though, is asking questions. Like the question from hell this week, which is... Who are you thanking for their service? Who are you thanking for their service? You can send us your answer to this week's question from hell via email to thisishellradio at gmail.com to yours truly, Seb, S-E-B, at thisishell.com or to Chuck at thisishell.com. You can also give us your answer via Facebook, via Twitter, at thisishellradio. And as usual, our favorite answer will win... A piece of merchandise of your choice, the trucker hat, the face covering, the face mask, the winter beanie, the flash drive with the This Is Hell interview archive, etc, etc. You know the drill. Go to thisishell.com and click on support to see your options. You could be a winner today if you give us a side-busting or just very insightful answer to this week's question from hell. Or... Once you're at the support page, you might just as well, since you're already there, just give us some money, buy some merch, support us in in some way, shape, or form. Become a Patreon uh, while you're at it. I mean, what's your excuse not to? We're cheaper than a Frappuccino, Frappuccino, or whatever those fancy coffees are called. I mean, we're we're broke. We don't have money for those things, right? So just uh, just throw us a buck here. <laughs> If you have to waste your money, at least waste it on something meaningful. Like us. Uh, what's new with me? Um, I'm learning how to drive. So, now I'm reading cutesy cartoon illustrated books on rules of the road aims at 14-year-olds and feeling, I don't know, a bit unreal. Also, a gentle reminder to all of y'all out there that there is still a pandemic going on. If you want to ever get rid of this, do your goddamn part and avoid indoor crowds. And if you can't avoid indoor crowds, wear two masks. I'm not even kidding. Also, maybe call your representatives about this and insist they get money going to massively revamp indoor ventilation because if we're not going to do that... We'll never get rid of the virus. And, uh, yeah, we'll likely never get rid of the virus because, after all, this is hell. Um, 
Anyway, so without much further ado, let me just get straight to it. <laughs> Seb's Soapbox. Uh, yeah, so last week, Ohio lawmakers started floating the idea of introducing a ruling that mandates the Holocaust must be taught in Ohio schools from the view of the perpetrators as well as from the victims. So all sides are covered, which, what does that, does that even mean? Uh, also, what, what the, what, what are they even thinking? I guess the question we can ask here is, can the Nazis, as in the actual Nazis, not like just people we disagree with because they have despicable opinions, can the actual Nazis teach us any meaningful lessons on their own terms? And then the question should be, what those lessons could possibly teach us? I mean, what what is there? What kind of teaching moments do the Nazis have on their own terms? Of course, in the current American sociocultural environment, there certainly are people who would want to make you think that the Nazis had some good points, actually. Much of the current moment seems to point towards such a kind of line of thought. Just look at how this society deals with people outside of a very narrow mainstream. Look at how this society treats disabled people. And then let's all recall how the Holocaust began with disabled people. Notice that I mean the industrialized mass destruction of human lives, the thing where at the end point the Nazis built actual factories that had only one singular purpose, to turn the raw material of human beings into corpses. The beginning of that were the disabled, or the way that the Third Reich treated disabled people, because their lives were deemed unworthy of living. Because the Nazis saw and portrayed them as a drain on society. And granted, current-day American society usually doesn't say that part out loud, but we're kind of getting close to it. And this also shows how closely related Nazism is with strong undercurrents in capitalism. If you can't work, if you can't contribute to production, if you can't contribute to capitalist growth, then why why should you get to eat? Um, why, Why should you live if it requires the labor of other people to allow for your existence. You can see why I personally am pretty goddamn scared of how this society will react to the millions of people struck with long COVID disabilities, because once those people no longer function well enough to fully participate in capitalism, then why should they be allowed to live? That's a lesson I fear that people would take from the Nazis if we took the Nazis at their own terms. Another lesson is something I talked about last week, and that is atomization. Uh, because one of the questions the Nazi of the Nazi regime's success, one of the questions that the Nazi regime's success puts up um, when it comes to the atrocities of the Holocaust is how it was possible for such a thing to happen in the first place. And uh, one of the answers here is, well, atomization. A society of self-interested individuals that no longer really constitute a society at all. And that is what Nazi Germany at the time of the actual Holocaust kind of was. And it, it's a good way of understanding how this could have happened. Uh, this has a lot to do with the war and the war's effect on German society overall. So in the 1940s, as World War II was in full swing, 
what was left of German society was grotesquely atomizing and isolating. German men of fighting age were at the front, wherever that was at any given moment. Um, and for people living in cities, their children were usually someplace in the countryside, away from the frequent bombing raids by Allied air forces. And meanwhile, the capos and other party-line-following party low-level Nazis policed the people left behind, and if then increasing numbers of Jewish or homosexual or non-party-line-following neighbors disappeared overnight, there wasn't much of a society left to even care about those things. And that too seems like a thing that could serve as a lesson for the society today. The more people are split apart from each other, the more isolated they are from each other. The more afraid they are for their own survival, the less they will care about the atrocities happening around them to other people in a, well, at least it's not me that this thing is happening to kind of way. And I'm not making the argument here that Germans didn't know their neighbors of Jewish descent were picked up at night by the Gestapo. They knew. They very well knew. Uh, there was just not much of a society left for those who might have still cared to turn to without an outsized chance of being disappeared in the night themselves. Not to excuse that, you know, but it's it's that's just the fact of... Uh, a fact of life in 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 that uh, during that time in in Germany and another lesson another lesson yet might be that if you don't want to get disappeared in the night you better just fit in don't upset society to the point where society might find you degenerate I mean after all the poor Nazis didn't have much of a choice with all the freewheeling modern art free love and the variety theater, drag drag shows, and gay-accepting life of German city dwellers, of which many were Jewish, and good old-fashioned countryside folks like the Nazis were, they just couldn't help but be very, very offended when they came to the cities. And this is actually another argument I'm seeing a lot of these days, that the left or the progressive side, you know, we... LGBTQ allies, we friends of immigrants, uh, we friends of and or atheists ourselves, um, we fans of redistributive welfare, we are just too much for the poor folks who disagree with us, and it's our fault for having things go our way with gay marriage and free abortions for everyone, with gender roles no longer having the traditional value, and with, um, uh, wait, what? Uh, with with different races intermixing freely, what are people really still? Huh? Yeah, they 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 actually still get their knickers on a twist about that, huh? Well, there are some legitimate reasons, some legitimate lessons. I mean, the Nazis can teach us, but not on their terms. Their terms should be understood as wholly and utterly illegitimate. German society as a whole had legitimate grievances, but no grievance, no grievance, no matter how big, can ever excuse the construction of a network of actual corpse factories and putting plans in motion to actively depopulate a continent to make room for oneself. That is just, no, uh, mm -mm, no, we're not, not even debating this. A good thing to note, and a point I've made on here several times, is that of national shame. So the end of World War One, the Versailles Treaties, um, the demand for reparations, that stuff, that crushed the German spirit. And the humiliating defeat in the war, the collapse of the German Empire, the chaos that follows, the crippling reparations, the 
massive inflation that wrecked the German economy, the Nazis could readily exploit those issues. And their promise was to essentially, well, pardon the turn of phrase, because it's kind of played out and beating a dead horse at this point, their promise was to make Germany great again, recalling a mythical past that never was, promising a future that was based on the promise of that past. And that would allow the people to overcome the malaise that outside forces had put upon them, the Jews, the foreigners, the communists, the Bolsheviks. The Nazis gave a people beset by mass unemployment and lack of perspective a new meaning on life, and they allowed these people who bought into their ideology to feel themselves be inherently and effortlessly better than those they despised. And that is a warning for all of us today. And all of these issues um, are not really lessons. The Nazis cannot and must not be used for lessons on their own terms. Uh, the people who want Nazis to teach us lessons on their own terms, guess what? They're very likely Nazis themselves. Modern Nazis, new Nazis, people we agree with, not people who were card-carrying members or book-carrying members of the National uh, Socialist Workers' Party of Germany. But anyway... And uh, that's it for this week's Soapbox. Uh, watch out later in the week. Um, probably going to be Friday, 4 p.m. again. My schedule is a bit, a bit of a mess right now, so I can't promise anything um, for when the full-length Eurodance version of this Soapbox uh, will air on our YouTube channel. This is Hell Radio 1996 on uh, YouTube. And now, in a connection to the topic of the soapbox, here is a 2019 interview with a writer and a housing justice advocate, Richard Hunzinger, on uh, the migrant concentration camps on the southern border, and uh, how capitalism loves to exploit captive labor, which, by the way, oh, the Nazis also did that. Uh, they they gave captive, or rather slave labor, to... Um, to, well, capitalist companies. Um, yeah, so if you're wondering where the connection is there. Anyway, enjoy. At managing the... Oops. Why is this... Okay, okay, and again. <clears throat> enjoy. This is hell. Late capitalism is having a real crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, and that crisis is caused by attempts at managing the crisis that is late capitalism. Here to give us his perspective on what he sees happening at the border and in migrant detention centers that some are equating to concentration camps, writer and member of Atlanta's Housing Justice League, Richard Hunsinger, posted the article at Cosmonaut titled Holocaust Capitalism. You can find that article at cosmonaut.blog. Richard is, uh, you can find out more about Richard's organization, the Housing Justice League, at housingjusticeleague.org. And you can follow Richard on Twitter at Dickofrenic, D-I-C-K-O-P-H-R-E-N-I-C. Welcome to This Is Hell, Richard. 
Good morning. How are you doing? Good. It's great to have you on the show. You write that today the left has come to a common acceptance that the detention camps in which migrants are incarcerated are concentration camps. Concentration camps are defined as a, as a place where large number of peoples, especially political prisoners or members of persecuted uh, minorities, are deliberately imprisoned in a relatively small area with inadequate facilities, sometimes to provide forced labor or to await mass execution. Are the immigrants at the border, in your opinion, are they political prisoners? Is attempting to enter the United States a political act that turns potential immigrants into political prisoners? I would say that I think there is a component of political mediation uh, potential in the situation here. Uh, but what I like focus on in this article here is mostly sort of the overall geography of the movement of this nomadic proletariat population as a relative surplus population produced by uh, accumulation of capital in this sort of like imperial epic uh like global production process that we're in. What do you mean by surplus? Uh, what do you mean by surplus populate population? Because I want to make sure that people understand the terms that you're going to be using throughout our conversation today. Yes, of course. So I'm referring generally to in Capital Volume One. Uh, Karl Marx talks about the general law of capitalist accumulation. And there is this discussion about how um, the greater the social wealth and functioning capital and the extent and energy of its growth, there's also the greater absolute mass of the proletariat and the productivity of its labor. And then it creates a greater, larger industrial reserve army, or in this case, a relative surplus population. And that comes about from sort of a sense of uh, when we talk about like how capital is created, we have to go to the sort of like origins of capitalism, which lie in uh, the example that Marx details in Capital Volume 1 is the primitive accumulation process, that's the term he gives it, uh, so-called primitive accumulation. And the historical process he lays out is the English example of the enclosure of the commons, which was in order to uh, take like what people had access to, their like means of subsistence, their proximity to their own like means of production and means of like social reproduction, uh, there had to be a violent and brutal uh, act of dispossessing them of their access to those things. And there's been a lot of other good uh, theoretical discussions that have advanced this theory, because um, in Capital Marx discusses this as being in the prehistory of capitalism, but uh, developments in the 20th and 21st centuries coming from Rosa Luxemburg, uh, and uh, David Harvey's accumulation by dispossession and Jackie Wong's racialized accumulation by dispossession uh, in her book, Carceral Capitalism, uh, aim to illustrate that this is actually an ongoing process that in all uh, cycles of like capital's accumulation, there must occur this sort of like base displacement where the capitalist or people who seek to appropriate the capital or like sources of value must forcibly uh, remove people from like their access to other like means of subsistence or like their access to that which they are laboring on in order to sell it back to them or like in initiate the sort of like productive consumption of their own 
means of subsistence. You write about how uh, primitive accumulation is capitalism's original sin. Can we address capitalism? Can we in any way reform capitalism, if you will, without addressing that original sin of primitive accumulation? I don't think we can, because like that is sort of like the initiating point. We have to understand where it comes from that, like capitalism and modern capitalism, like have like absolutely some sort of like inherent sort of like violent origin. And that it's not just a violent origin. It's a violent ongoing process by which it is able to assert its dominance. There must be this sort of like displacement that forms the base or infrastructure of capital accumulation. So, so how is capitalism's violence taking place at the U.S.-Mexico border? Okay, so there I wanted to focus on sort of, um, this is like an interesting uh, thing that I've been noticing too, where like there is this discussion where uh, as these get discussed as concentration camps, which I just, that's a fact, um, like as this gets discussed, uh, there seems to be a an immediate conflation with fascism and immediate parallels with uh, Nazi Germany, which I think there are still distinct differences, though I think uh, there is a clear parallel trajectory emerging that we should not take lightly. And But what I wanted to do is uh, it occurred to me that these camps were not really functioning itself in or originating within like a specific function of exterminationist logic that they were actually like fitting quite neatly uh, into the United States' own like reinvestment into its own means of production and its own like uh, normal capital flows. And uh, so what I talked about there is like, uh, there's this primitive accumulation, these other like forms of accumulation by dispossession which are facilitated by like these uh, large like regional hemisphere trade deals like NAFTA and USMCA, like the new uh, one that Trump is proposing that are formed by, you know, like multinational corporations protecting their interests in the region, uh, like free trade only serves like these large like corporate entities. And that just like further like concentrates the like, capital of the entire hemisphere into like smaller and smaller hands. So, and it further alienates the sort of like labor populations of Latin American states from the, that which they're producing. Uh, so these, and this is enforced by like brutal intervention into the like social, political and economic affairs of these Latin American states. So as these like are more and more like uh, very disparate climates of like social, political, and economic instability. Of course, people are going to have to leave, especially as like climate change is starting to affect their agricultural production. Uh, and now, like they're moving towards the core, where there are greater incentives offered for labor than in the periphery of this region. And so, like the, it's constantly producing this surplus population at the same time as domestic populations in the US, the US citizenry is starting to experience like a lot more downward social mobility. Um, the like income inequality gaps are widening and that's producing this sort of like fractured reactive consciousness and 
like many political leaders are offering this sort of like solution of like economic nationalism and seeking to uh, focus very much on the lives of Americans and Americans first and whatnot. So it, it becomes like, as they've relied on, they said like the, the rich have relied on these cheaper labor populations that the nomadic proletariat here as the migrants have provided for them for a while, but now it's starting to come in conflict with its immediate political goals and how it retains power domestically. So they, these camps uh, are starting to erect themselves as a way to capture this relative surplus population that is the migrant and still be able to profit off of it through the privatization mechanism of it because 72% of these camps uh, or 72% of incarcerated migrants are held in privately owned camps. You write the old rallying cry of American jobs for American workers is also a bipartisan talking point, revealing the reactionary one-party state that has always dominated the U.S. working class. In the case of the concentration camps on the border then, we should not be fooled by either party's posturing in addressing the matter. The reactionary one-party state that has always dominated the U.S. working class. Why do you hear that in American Jobs for American Workers. How is pro-U.S. worker rhetoric reactionary? It's reactionary in that, like, these are ways that the sort of, like, bourgeois state apparatus seeks to protect itself. Like, um, this is, like, another, like, uh, Marxist point, too, where it's just, like, uh, under a capitalist society and a capitalist mode of production, the state is uh, merely like a dictatorship with the bourgeoisie. So in this case, it's like, and we've seen this like many times between Republicans and Democrats, there is various like surface level differences in positions that parties hold, but roughly they have the same interest and it is the interest of like the rich, the capitalist within society. And I find it interesting that they are both sort of gravitating towards this economic nationalism, which is a term that um, the likes of Steve Bannon is very much a fan of. And among Democrats, you, I, it, Elizabeth Warren explicitly used this term uh, in describing sort of her approach to this. And it's, it's a mechanism by which they can retain power over a domestic population by reinserting this sort of like nationalistic patriotism and like sense of self and nationhood that is needed in order to sustain it because like the proletariat like the working class really does not have a country you write social um, democratic uh, policy prescriptions for capitals crises and growing racial and class conflict is gaining traction on the right. For example, Tucker Carlson on his Fox News show now engages with critiques of free market capitalism previously foreign to U.S. conservatives, even inviting a past guest on our show, Angela Nagel, a so-called leftist cultural critic, on as a guest. The manifesto of the El Paso shooter similarly criticizes the failures of American capitalism while supporting social democratic reforms such as universal basic income and universal health care to mitigate class conflict while also advocating for an increasingly popular ethno-nationalism. How vulnerable is democratic socialism to ethno-nationalism, even fascism, and how can social democrats keep fascism from co-opting social democracy? 
Well, I think it's actually quite vulnerable in the U.S., uh, mostly because of the fact that, like, we are a, like, nation or a state with uh, deeply ingrained, like, institutions of white supremacy. And the reason I think that social democracy is very vulnerable to this is that it is fundamentally reformist uh, in a way that does not fully contest the, like, origins of capital and capital accumulation, and it is at heart a national, a nationalist project. So even if you get some of these reforms like Medicare for all, single payer health care, you're not fundamentally going to be able to address the elements within those coalitions that are coming in that could be hostile to migrants and like the borders. Like I, I know Angela Nagel wrote this piece called The Left Case Against Open Borders, which really just like foregoes any chances of like any sort of like internationalism or solidarity with the global proletariat. And it's susceptible as well, because as you see from things like the El Paso shooter manifesto, as well as like Tucker Carlson, the right is starting to very much like make these same critiques of uh, like American capitalism and its excesses. And that should be a big, like, alarm ringing for any American leftist uh, because it shows, like, where you are very vulnerable to co-optation. Um, like, my nightmare really is that, like, uh, Bernie Sanders gets elected and we still have these migrant concentration camps and border crisis because fundamentally, like, uh, if you become the representative of the capitalist state, uh, even if you promise to be on the side of the workers, everyone, when these same workers threaten that economic, social, and political instability of the state, like you, because of your position in this uh, political office, are going to be forced to defend the economic status quo of the area. And that will become defending the national project, which will play right into a sort of like fascist reaction as these problems are not able to be solved by U.S. institutional politics. So for what the left could do to be uh, mitigating this is that I write sort of, um, I did not go into detail here as well, but I think to a degree some of these reforms uh, would be beneficial. Like I'm not going to like turn my nose up at single payer health care. I think it's incredibly important things that we should be looking for, Medicare for all. But at the same time, like, as we exert this influence on the U.S. institutional political sphere, and we see it starting to capture our interests, like the left at large within America needs to start preparing to figure out like where its politics can sort of like make a rupture with this procedural left and continue pushing the conversation towards the like uh, a real like politics that can confront capital and provide an alternative to this uh, ethno-nationalist capitalism. You mentioned how national, the Nationalist Project must conceal a reality in order to sustain its fantasy. What must the Nationalist Project conceal in order to sustain its fantasy? So this is where, like, the Nationalist Project, in order to sustain its fantasy, needs to uh, create some sort of Uh, other as like this object of like uh, a symbol of like lack for the national subject by which it can uh, see itself in that it is not this other. 
And that that's kind of drawing on some psychoanalysis a little bit. But it comes to the fact that, like, uh, it's, it needs to disengage, like, people's understandings of its international economic syntheses and ties that it has uh, with its social ties of organization, like kinship and citizenry. Like, it needs to do that in order to make people still believe that America is this sort of, like, self-sustaining like stand alone power within the world when in reality we are entirely reliant upon the violent extraction of resources on a global scale. Like we are an imperial power. We have like asserted dominion over this hemisphere and done it ruthlessly and violently for like centuries now, ever since the Monroe doctrine. And uh, it only works that we are able to see ourselves as this like citizenry if we are able to see ourselves separate from those that we can point to and say, you do not belong here. So, uh, Richard, uh, we're speaking with writer Richard Hunsinger, also an activist. He has an article at Cosmonaut called Holocaust Capitalism. You write about uh, how... uh, forming amongst the anti-corporate strains of U.S. politics is an understanding of the mutual share of responsibility that Republicans and Democrats possess in their inability to counter the tide of corporate influence, instead taking part in the full transformation of the state into a model of realization for capital. What happens to a government like the United States, a representative democracy, when it becomes a model of realization for capital? And what would you say to somebody who argues it always was that neoliberalism and today's age of late capitalism hasn't changed anything? I would say, like, uh, they are right very much uh, to an extent. Like, when we talk about this transformation, when I mention it, I'm just saying uh, about, like, a continuation and sort of, like, a further realization of a process that uh, is tied to the history of the origins of industrial capitalism. Because capitalism has always proceeded in its development through the state form. And the state has always been a very important apparatus for the uh continuation of capitalism's development because that is the state under what we could call a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie becomes the apparatus where the bourgeoisie or a national bourgeoisie is able to assert its interests and hold a monopoly on the assertion of its interest through the like use of legitimized force or violence. Um, Yeah, but like what I try to point to with this privatization and talking about this further as a model of realization for capital is that like in the advent of neoliberalism, what you do see is like very much like a ramping up of this process and a sort of the the curtain coming down on how this functions. Like it's very much a natural outgrowth of capitalist development. Like this would be the end conclusion. And what I try to point to with that is how it's like, you see it very clearly in the concentration camps and that so many of uh, migrants uh, that are detained uh, and incarcerated there are detained in these private camps, which are basically just like channeling funding through like government contracts, like a core civic, which is formerly the corrections corporation of America and geo group, both uh, like, Earn a combined $985 million from government contracts alone in 2017. 
And then there's all these other like parties at play too, because even privatized within the camps are all of these various like functions, which I'm sure that they are like obligated to by their contract to provide. Uh, and it's anywhere from just like healthcare, telephone services, shampoo products that have to be produced. And of course they're all terrible products. And like they, I'm sure there's like not a lot of care and attention going into that stuff, but it's funneling through these things so that like banks that invest finance capital into them, companies that like run their products through them, tech companies that run like data projects that they're testing out and developing through them. And the corporations that run these companies are basically using the relative surplus population that uh, the nomadic proletariat, the migrants are here as uh, a sort of like channel through which to further realize capital. Am I going too far, or does this sound a lot like the antebellum financialization of slavery? I would say I'd have to like read up more on that topic to say, but uh, could you elaborate on it a little bit more for uh, me? Just that uh, it, they were selling on Wall Street. Uh, they were commodifying slaves. There, it was possible to invest and make fa- financial investments within slaves on Wall Street. So it just started it, when I read that. I just started thinking about how much and, and the amount of money that it that there's a, a price put on each bed and on each person who is put into these facilities that is an agreed upon price by Congress that these private institutions get. It just sounds so much like pricing human bodies. It just sounds so much like slavery. Oh, it entirely is. Like, uh, I, I do know, like, uh, I believe I've read elsewhere that, like, some of these migrants are actually induced into, like, forced labor of some things, but I don't know if that is a significant level enough yet to say that that is like the sole intent or a significant like source of value. But no, that sounds very analogous. You also write that left projects organizing support on a grassroots level to support these reformist initiatives must remain conscious of the limitations of the nationalist project. Whether there is a claim to reject American nationalism or not, this is the sphere of political action these projects occupy. Is grassroots organizing an exercise in American nationalism? And if not organizing in the realm of American nationalism, where can those who want systemic changes, where can they organize outside of American nationalism? Well, one, I don't think, I think that organizing outside of American nationalism means organizing with an increasingly international consciousness regarding the like working class and like proletariat on a global scale and finding ties with those projects and those efforts that are happening throughout the world with your own organizing and developing that consciousness with everybody that you're organizing with. Um, I, I would not say that grassroots at like organizing and work is inherently an American nationalist project. Like I would say the sort of organizing for reformist initiatives of a nationalist project, such as like Medicare for all, you know, these would be like state reforms. Those constitute like very much acting within a nationalist project. Um, But like, it's about further developing this internationalism that is coming out on the left, which is a developing very well. Um, I know that, like even the DSA is being more conscious of this as well. 
but it's important to like continue to reassert this and figure out how to start forging these ties and this real solidarity between like our domestic proletariat and the nomadic proletariat of like the migrants that are incarcerated here and starting to build coalitions between these groups because we have to like the only way to like abolish the border here would be to sort of like uh, continue to push that there like really is materially like no border except that which is enforced by the state. You uh, mentioned, uh, well, actually, I guess that's the bigger question I want to ask. Can, can, the, can the United States de-neoliberalize? Can the world, because, uh, and more importantly, how much would any process or any actual de-neoliberalized world, how much would that solve the current crises we're experiencing under late capitalism? Mm. Well, here's the thing with uh, neoliberalism that I think is important to point out. While I think it is like a useful term to kind of like better characterize like the more recent like epic of like uh, capitalism that we are experiencing, I do think we need to be careful in like making sure that we're not sort of asserting it as a sort of like distinct mode of production or type of society from this because we have to be very clear that like what we are experiencing now what we are living in is the product of like capitalist society uh continuing to assert itself in the social relations that it needs in order to constantly reproduce itself it is this constantly homogenizing process of social relations that uh create capital uh, inform it on a global level. So I, I, what was the second part of the question you asked? <laughs> Again, I'm looking on to the next question already. Uh, what, what I was, yeah. what I was asking was how much would that solve the current crises we're experiencing in capitalism? If we did deo neoliberalize, if that's even possible to de neoliberalize. Mm-hmm. I don't know about like, solving the current crisis so much is that we have to directly confront them and solutions will only present themselves through action and confrontation. So are the detention centers then an outcome of poor crisis management during late capitalism? Could the crisis that is late capitalism be managed better or is any crisis management in late capitalism going to have harmful effects? Mm. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like poor crisis management because I think this makes perfect sense, especially with like the direct, like the amount of like concentration camps like that are present within United States history and like forcible detention of like ethnic groups like that's like very much a part of U.S. history kind of baked into it. It's not really an abnormal practice. And it's not an abnormal practice of like large uh, states on a global scale. Like this happens very much when they're starting to have these uh, like immigration problems that they cannot solve like with because the when I was talking earlier about saying like the working class, the proletariat has no country. It's because it is this sort of like universally produced subject by capital accumulation. Um, When we talk about that sort of like base or infrastructure of capital accumulation being a displacement. We're also talking about 
that like this displacement, this ongoing act as such creates a continually like larger sort of like surplus population. And if I could point to, this is in um, Capital Volume 1, uh, Marx says, uh, the same causes which develop the expansive power of capital also develop the labor power at its disposal. The relative mass of the Industrial Reserve Army thus increases with the potential energy of wealth. But the greater this reserve army in proportion to the active labor army, the greater is the mass of a consolidated surplus population whose misery is an, inver is an inverse ratio to the amount of torture it has to undergo in the form of labor. The more extensive, finally, the pauperized sections of the working class and the industrial reserve army, the greater is official pauperism. This is the absolute general law of capitalist accumulation. So, like, it's going to be as capital accumulates we will be constantly producing like a greater and ever larger sort of like immiserated dispossessed uh like proletariat on a global scale and that is that becomes sort of like the conditions for like who must be organized what must happen and like how to combat it is what we are seeing then at the u.s mexico border in any sense a an uprising if you will against capitalism's dependence upon the misery of others in order for it to succeed is this the revolution against capitalism's utter dependence upon the lowest wage workers so the richest can accumulate wealth yeah i would say that it's like maybe not so much a like conscious revolution but itself being like a process or like a result of this sort of like uh ongoing contradiction between like the free movement of capital across borders and the similarly restricted movement of labor populations like that is just like an immediate global contradiction that this displays uh like perfectly it is a real just like picture of like that which is not adding up and it's that sort of like disengagement of societies like organize or of like a nation's or metropolitan societies like organizations of uh, kinship and citizenship disengaging with the international economic uh, syntheses that actually constitute it. So like I think what we're seeing too is a, a like sort of a global like revolution against the concept of nationalism and that in turn like fueling the nationalist reaction against it which is what plays into the sort of like fascist reaction so is any uprising that is happening today about the fact that capital has more freedom than people and if that is the case to what extent do we actually realize that within say the mainstream political debate does everybody have i'm trying to figure out does everybody have a sense of this that we that capital has more freedom than people and we're rising up against it or do we have are, are we utterly aware of it if that makes uh, sense i think like certain no, yeah, I think a lot of the American left is like very aware of this. I think that contradiction is one that is discussed very openly by people that pay attention to the migrant camp situation. Um, but I think like perhaps to like maybe an American public at large, that is not uh, very conscious. And you're definitely not going to see that discussion happening in a U.S. institutional political sphere, which is just like moving more and more towards fascism in this sort of like 
varying levels of consciousness of that process. Like in the U.S. like institutional political sphere and within like the like state establishment and apparatus, there are varying levels of just like unconscious sort of like emergence of fascism. Though there are certainly within like right-wing spheres, like very conscious fascists, uh, but they have yet to really like fully seize a power on this. But like this moment where you start seeing this like very uh, irrationality of that contradiction, you know, like global free movement of capital, uh, but restricted movement of labor and like a, an imperialist uh, nation that has, um, relied upon like this cheap, like nomadic proletariat for like cheaper labor, um, for so long, starting to like reject that, incarcerate that and turn back towards its domestic labor population, despite the fact that it's been deindustrializing and de-skilling this domestic labor population for decades is producing this sort of like irrationality that moves from like, uh, a sort of like conscious and like sensible like investment into the society's own means of production more and more so into this like investment into society's own like means of self-destruction which is like where you start to see fascism like really forming like uh, i like uh following um paul virilio uh via deleuze and Gattari's, uh discussion of fascism and micropolitics as this sort of like emergence of the suicidal state. Just a couple more questions for you, Richard. Uh, you write that considering the origin of these displacements that have created the nomadic proletariat, we must take into account the long history of U.S. military and political intervention in the affairs of Latin American states, which lays a foundation for current waves of migration, Latin American intervention, the intentional and violent arrangements of political power in those countries for the benefit of U.S. interests is a history with a clear end goal, and that has been the dominance over the claim to ownership of surplus value created in production by multinational corporations that have in turn enforced monocultural agricultural production, super exploitation, and further alienation of those laborers from that which they produce. In order for us to address the border and the problems that are faced, people are facing at the border right now, at the U.S.-Mexico border, do we have to confront American exceptionalism and innocence? Does confronting the issues at the border mean admitting that the American myth that so many on the right believe in it is wrong. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, American exceptionalism needs to be, like, very much dismantled in the hearts and minds of the U.S. population. And we need to be constantly challenging and, like, uncovering, like, efforts we see uh, to, like, destabilize Latin American countries for the, like, U.S. interests. Um, you know, like, very good efforts in this, like, or like a development of this consciousness was uh, seen this year, I think, in like the very like easy like push against uh, what was quite obviously, you know, like the U.S. backing like a very like not popular uh, coup attempt within Venezuela uh, with like clear economic interest at play. Um, more and more people discussing and analyzing the history of like Latin American intervention. Like I think something like within the last like half century, there have been like 50 plus like U.S. like interventions in Latin American states or like various like coups supported by the United States in those countries. So, yeah, it's, it's really important to constantly be challenging the narrative that the U.S. has of itself. 
One last question for you, Richard. We have been speaking with writer and activist Richard Hunsinger, who posted the article at Cosmonaut titled Holocaust Capitalism. Richard is a member of Atlanta's Housing Justice League. You can find out more about the Housing Justice League at housingjusticeleague.org. You can find his article, Holocaust Capitalism, at cosmonaut.blog. And you can follow Richard on Twitter at Dickofrenic, D-I-C-K-O-P-H-R-E-N-I-C, which is an awesome Twitter handle. One last question for you, Richard. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, the transition to fascism is seamless because the progression is inherent in capitalist crisis in the U.S., where the capitalist mode of production is so highly developed with heavily ingrained institutions of white supremacy. Capital's tornado reaches an intensity and magnitude of crisis to make the qualitative shift to the black hole of fascism's suicidal state. The movement is not yet complete, and we may yet have time to prevent a new American Holocaust. Its death will only be real if we act. What would a new American Holocaust look like? Uh, I do not want to picture that or envision it because I do not want to, like, like first I will just say this, that it's just, um, I think that, uh, when we talk about the Holocaust with this in relation to it, it's that like, we need to sort of understand that the extermination logic that emerged out of Nazi Germany itself was like a part of like specific set of like material conditions that we are a bit closer, I think, than we are comfortable with uh, to replicating to an extent because people are already dying and being murdered by guards in these camps, people already being like shot and killed by uh, CBP on the border before they even get into these camps. Like, and you've got like right wingers and people all over the place, like calling for their like removal, like violent expulsion from the country. Like it's, we often sometimes view the like Holocaust of Nazi Germany as some sort of like singular historical event. And I think we're sort of missing the ways in which this is quite reproducible by uh, other societies, because I would say like the United States itself too, in its own history of like settler colonialism and like in the manifest destiny period has very much a logic of exterminationism sort of like in its core of like how it addresses crises and here like we're seeing it turn into this very seamlessly because it's part of this reaction it's reverting back to its own sort of like violent reassertion of its own power here and uh like my nightmare as well as that too is just that like if we get if bernie sanders gets elected and things don't improve but there is more and more support for these like social democratic reforms in this, uh, like sort of like idea of like a socialism, then like that paves the way very much for like an even more intense backlash, uh, like an even more intense fascist reaction. If people embrace the sort of, uh, like socialism or like only on a nationalist scale, but reject the more progressive tendencies of like a socialist movement, then they will, 
so that perfectly paves the way for like an actual like national socialist to emerge and for the exterminationism of the U.S. to just accelerate. So I am deeply worried about this situation. Um, I don't really have a lot of faith in the U.S. institutional political sphere to address this. I think a lot about um, Barack Obama's promise back in 2008, I, yeah, 2008 to close Gitmo, and that is still open. So it's like it's very much outside of the hands of whoever you elected the head of state. And it's honestly disgusting to me that they're all using it as a talking point right now on the debate stage. Like, I, uh, I just can't. <laughs> Richard, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. And last Saturday night, I appeared live on stage on this guy's show called the Michael Brooks uh, Show here in Chicago. It's, from, it's out of Brooklyn. But I just wanted to tell you this one thing I overheard uh, in the lobby beforehand amongst all these lefty-type people who were talking to each other. I overheard this one quote, and I thought it was so incredibly adorable that I wanted to share it with you. I heard this guy say... That's when I was like, wow, I never knew I was a Marxist. I thought that was the cutest thing in the world. <laughs> guy had Wait, no, who? Some random guy in the audience. Just all the, I just overheard him say, wow, that, that's when I was like, wow, I never knew I was a Marxist. Like he just woke up to the fact. I just thought it was a fascinating thing. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show this week. I really appreciate it. And we hope to have you on again soon. Thank you very much. And good luck with your organization as well, the uh, Atlanta Housing Justice Project. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Whoa, and we're back in uh, 2022. <clears throat> Sounds like there's a storm brewing outside. Um, a literal storm, not like um, in a... I mean, I guess also in a metaphorical sense. Who knows? Um, So, well, that concludes the interview part of the program. And now we're just having a little bit of fun. Uh... Yeah, too bad I had a little bit of... I don't know. Can you even call it a writer's block? I will admit that this week's question from hell is not my best work yet. Um, I uh, promise to be better next week. So, again, this week's question from hell is... Who are you thanking for their service? Probably would have been better for, like, Memorial Day or... I don't know, Veterans Day. Um... And also, on its on its face, this kind of question seems like I'm asking who specifically, like in terms of what kind of person, um, like your uncle who served in whatever kind of war or whatnot. But that's not what this is about. That's was that was not what I, what I was thinking, um, honestly. But that doesn't really come across well. So, apologies. Um, I was more thinking about I don't know. You think? Um, yeah, like the supermarket cashier, or the, the, your taxi driver, or or something. Um, you know, being fun like that. Some people seem to have gotten gotten that, but not a lot. We have not a lot of replies yet. So, if you can, uh, if you're listening to this and you have not given us your reply to this week's question from hell, please do so at Facebook. Um, this is Hell Radio. At Twitter. This is Hell Radio. Um, send it to us via email at 
to Seb at Chuck at or thisishelradio at gmail.com. Um, anyway, Loyal, so let me quickly see how the listening audience is responding. Jeremy T. says, Pass. I do my thinking with bumper stickers. Thank you very much, because I'm a good conservative American. Giggle emojis. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's fair. Uh, Wojciech R. says, he, uh, uh, what, who, who are you thinking for their service? He says, my bartenders. And that's what I was going for. Uh, Borky B. says, the Azov Battalion. Okay. I, I don't know if I, I can condone that, but whatever. Uh, our very own Pete V. says, the Visigoths. Don't know where that's where that was coming from, but um, I'm here for it. And finally, uh, Fabio L says he uh, thanks Chuck's surgeon for their service, which I guess we is a sentiment we can all agree on. Uh yeah. So um, please give us more answers to this week's question from hell, which again is where you thank for their service. Um, so that uh, tomorrow and. Wednesday, Dan and Lindsay have something to read live on air. Um, other than that, that's it for this Monday's show. Um, if you've all been good little piggies and sent your thoughts and non-denominational prayers to Chuck, then uh, our beloved host will return next Monday um, with all with an all-new interview. And Limbo will be over as quickly as it started. If uh, you've not been good little piggies, um, well, and this was all your fault, and uh, then our beloved host will not return as uh, soon as he disappeared into limbo again, I, even though this was planned. You know, it's not like this came out of the blue. Um, insulting our audience for fun and profit since 1996. <laughs> this is hell. Tune in tomorrow on Tuesday, July 12th to hear Dan, producer Dan Hill, introduce a 2017 interview with William C. Anderson and Zoe Samuzdi on the anarchism of blackness. And uh, he will also have This Week in Rotten History. And on Wednesday, tune in for Lindsay to present an interview of her choosing that she hasn't determined yet. Um... Who knows, maybe by the time that the podcast is out, she will have to turn it. But anyway. And uh, yeah, on Wednesday, Lindsay will also have our good friend Jeff Thorchin on um, with another moment of super truth. I'm producer Sebastian Whooper signing off for today. Until next week. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>